Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, I'm interviewing Vic Ferrari. Now, Vic is a retired New York City Police Department police officer slash detective. Did a lot of amazing things in his career. Uh, he wrote several books now about those uh, those adventures, and and they certainly were adventures. Uh, it, it was just a, it was a pleasure speaking with Vic. I I want to kind of point out a few things here. Um, what we're going to do most of the time is he's going to tell us a little bit about how he joined the the New York City Police Department. Of course, it's a, a department that you know is is world world renowned and, and famed. La, you know, it's the largest city in the United States. So, of course, the police department is one that a lot of people know about or want to want to be a part of. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that in the police department. Uh, we're going to he's going to I guess share several stories. From his time in the police department because he is an author now he has books where he has kind of a compilation of interesting stories that happened to him funny stories that happened to him crazy things that happened to him and they are <laughs> they're interesting to to say the least we're going to cover three main stories one is a story about a nun one is a story about a one of the biggest cockfighting rings ever and then we're going to cover another one uh, that's called the Hans, uh, Hansel and Gretel story. And I, uh, I said Hansen in this. Uh, it's Hansel. Hansel and Gretel. Uh, the Hansel and Gretel story, which you'll just hear exactly what that's all about. Uh, the one thing I want to mention here is, you know, he is a, a New Yorker. So, you know, the, the stereotype, you know, of the... I don't know. I don't know exactly what I want to say. I don't want to get myself in trouble here. The, you know, kind of the fast talking. You know, I guess a little bit more uh, brash, rough around the edges. That's that's the stereotype, right? I don't know if that's necessarily true. I can't say I know a ton of New Yorkers, but what I do know is the way that he tells his stories. I did not want to take away from any of that, and that means there is parts of the story um, that have some some you know explicit language some profanity to it uh, you know I normally keep that at a minimum in these podcasts and rather than you know try to cut them out which I've done in other other episodes before I didn't want to do that I think that kind of takes away from the flow of the story so do know that there is some uh, some you know content that uh, maybe not suitable for for young kids or at least those who who don't want to uh, hear some profanity I I really think that it's not just profanity just for the sake of profanity you know I think that it, it's 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 not just some you know crazy explicit profane thing that that's just distasteful by any means Vic is an amazing guy you know he's a, a member of law enforcement or, or retired from that and I think you're going to enjoy the stories you know those who can handle a little bit of you know explicit language I think you're going to love these stories those who that makes them a little uncomfortable hope you'll stick with it because there are some amazing stories today uh, but we're going to we're going to talk about those stories he's going to tell us about his books how you can pick those up you know if you hear these stories I want to hear 
even more of them. He's got some amazing books out there. But it was just a pleasure speaking with him and just learning more about him, about his stories, about the New York City Police Department. Thank you. In, uh, you're in for a, an amazing ride today. So without further ado, here is Vic Ferrari. I'm here today with Vic Ferrari. Mr. Ferrari, how are you? Hey, Jackson. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for joining me. appreciate it very much. Uh, if you would, just, just introduce yourself. My name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired NYPD detective, and now I'm an author. Yeah, easy, easy enough. How did you, uh, how did you get in, involved with law enforcement? And I also wonder, kind of to piggyback off of that, are you from New York originally? I know a lot of people that have moved there just because I don't know, I don't know what to call it. I feel like the NYPD, LAPD, those are kind of like, uh, like destination departments. You're 100% right. Um, but I am a Bronx kid, born and raised in New York City, lower working middle class family. I always wanted to be a police officer. When I was five years old, my mother used to take me to the movie theater around the corner from the police station. So I used to go up to the police cars and look in the window and look at the hats and the equipment. And every boy is drawn to that gun. I used to see the cops walking around with their hands like resting on the butt of their guns. I used to say to myself at five, six years old, hey, I want one of those. By 10, me and my friends used to go to the local post office and steal FBI wanted posters, walk around the neighborhood and see if we could find somebody. And, you know, we'd walk into the local deli with a wanted poster. Some guy wanted for a bank robbery in Louisiana. And it's some poor construction worker getting a sandwich. And we're like, that could be that fucker right there, you know? <laughs> by 20, I took the, the, the exam. And by 21, I was in the New York City Police Academy, where I enjoyed a 20-year career working in a, a bunch of different units. I spent 15 out of 20 years in plain clothes. I worked in an anti-crime unit, which is like robbery in progress, burglaries in progress. Uh, I worked at a DUI unit. I worked in the Manhattan North Narcotics Division during the crack epidemic of the 90s. And my last 10 years, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division. So anything with um, chop shops, stolen cars, uh, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, changing vehicle identification numbers on stolen cars for resale, and the mafia. And uh, after 20 years with the NYPD, I retired and I was bored out of my mind. And I got into writing a series of books about my former employer. Yeah, no, and I want to I want to unpack all of that. And I want to kind of start with uh, kind of the first thing that I mentioned about how the NYPD is kind of a destination department. What was that like, you know, being a, a native and then having people from all over the country, you know, join the force? I'm sure there's some that came from areas very different and was very uh you know wet under the ears i think that's what you call it i feel like that would be a strange shocking world for some people if they came from uh i don't know duluth minnesota not to pick on duluth funny you should say that there was a kid in my police academy class from minnesota um <laughs> we hire in bulk so uh, just to give you some background so new york city police department at any given time when i was active is between 35 and forty thousand members so we hire in bulk a small police academy class is 250 recruits. A large one can be up as high as 2,500. I was considered a middle class. It was 1,200. The vast majority of recruits when I was active are city kids. Um, I would say probably about 80% are, are coming from the five boroughs. And then I would say another 15% come from the outer counties, uh, Orange County, Rockland County, Nassau, and Suffolk from Long Island. And then probably four or five percent is out of state that, you know, they grew up watching 
cops and robbers on TV and wanted to be a member of the New York City Police Department. And there were a couple of guys from different states. Yeah. So what years were you involved with this? I'm just trying to figure out with New York, because, I mean, you talked about the crack epidemic. Um, I mean, there was a huge, obviously, issue with with organized crime at one point. I remember I think there's even a documentary with Giuliani cracking down with that. So what, what, when were you on the on the force? I was active from 1987 to 2007. I'm old. I don't know about that, but so does that make you as a kid? I'm trying to think. You know, you were in in uh, you know New York during like what is it, Son of Sam, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, I was uh, I was a child. It's funny. My aunt is um, was a change of life baby, so my aunt is 18 years older than me. So I remember as a young boy. So I was nine or ten years old when that was going on, and my aunt was you know dating at the time and she cut her hair short and she dyed her hair blonde because word you know the rumor was that the son of sam hunted brunettes and my aunt is a brunette i got a couple of funny son of sam stories actually um on the sixth story of the police academy in the old days uh we had our lab so if you went up to the sixth floor if you made a left it was the the lab where they tested narcotics to the right was the ballistics section where they tested firearms and one day I dropped off a large seizure of narcotics and I'm waiting for the elevator in the hallway. And on the wall is like a, a display case that like somebody in a shop class would make. Like it, it was like, you know, like dyed wood and stuff behind plexiglass. Looked like something like your dad would do for you. And I'm looking at it and there's a Thompson machine gun and there's all wild stuff. And then I look and un, behind this plexiglass is David Berkowitz, the son of Sam's 44 caliber handgun charter arms bulldog or whatever it was called and it's just sitting there and i'm like holy shit and then i look to the right of it and there's the gun that killed john lennon so they had like you know it's just i got to see so many wild things that you would never think of you know that's interesting so i mean were they just kind of is it like a little bit of a a museum for you guys or why was it all there yeah it was it was, they had it on display. I mean, obviously, that gun went up there at some point to be tested. And once the criminal case was over, I mean, he's been convicted and sentenced to life, multiple life sentences. They put it on display on the sixth floor of, floor of the police academy. Now, that building has since been sold. And I think uh, the lab and, and uh, ballistics is out in Queens. So I don't know what they did with it. But uh, back, you know, in the 90s, that's where it was. Well, you've already kind of given us a story i know you're quite the storyteller we're obviously going to get to your books but you gave me a few stories that would be uh probably a desirable desirable listen to uh you know those who are listening so start with i think you have a, a cockfighting story tell us a little bit about that so i'm in the auto crime division and we investigate organized crime and, and from time to time we'll pick off the garden variety pain in the ass car thief but we're supposed to go to the root of the problem so one day my sergeant comes well let's go back before that I had come up it was like towards the end of my career and I had made a bunch of arrests that had nothing to do with auto crime I walked into a gambling I walked into a bodega to grab a soda and I walked into a gambling den I locked everybody up I locked up a guy for a gun so one day my lieutenant calls me into his office he goes doing a great job love the activity stick to auto crime and I said lieutenant I said I do it's just I happen to walk in he goes I get it next time you walk into a gambling den call vice I said all right you got it so a couple of days later, my sergeant comes up to me and he goes, uh, we're getting killed with these stolen Vespa motor scooters on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. He says, uh, can you find out where, who's stealing them and where they're going? I said, all right. So I started running the plates of these stolen Vespas. I find out that a kid got arrested driving one in the Bronx. 
So my logic is, okay, there's a bunch of kids from the Bronx in that neighborhood that are going up to the Upper East Side. They're stealing these Vespas. And if I go to that neighborhood, I'm going to start picking off kids riding around in Vespas. I'll make the problem go away. I go to the neighborhood, no Vespas. But in that neighborhood, there's all these six-story walk-up buildings. So one by one, my partner and I go into each building. We go into the basement. We, t- we talk to the superintendent of the building, and we ask, can we look in your common area to see in the common area underneath these six-story walk-up buildings, you have people store. It's like, like, like a storage facility. People store their motorcycles, bicycles, uh, snow shovels, just extra stuff. One by one, we're going to these buildings. Each super is couldn't be nice. They're showing us their underground lair. They're proud, right? The last building I go to, the super, he looked like Tattoo from Fantasy Island. He was about four feet tall with like dyed jet black hair. And he's a nervous wreck. He's like, okay, okay. And he and he's walking me up to this, this partition that's got this large uh, rolling door a wall and he's dropping his keys he's a nervous wreck and i'm like what the fuck is up with this guy like everybody else is cool with this and then this guy is a nervous wreck he he takes this uh he, un- he unbolts the lock he pulls across the partition puts on the lights and there's got to be a hundred chickens and roosters running around the floor of this de- basement right and i'm like mm. holy shit then i look on the walls you've got pods stacked up like metal crates and you got like another 40 or 50 roosters in there. Those, I guess, were the fighting cocks. So I know what this is. I mean, this is this is either a breeding ground for cockfighting or they're having the matches in there. But, I mean, it's totally illegal. And the super's looking at me and I'm looking at him. And the light goes off in my head about stick to auto crime. So I said, all right, um, no Vespas? And he goes, no Vespas. I said, okay, lock it up. He goes, okay. I said, yeah, I don't <laughs> give a shit. So he let, I mean, like he thought he hit the lottery, right? So we leave. I go up to my car. I get on the cell phone. I call my sergeant. I go, get the fucking cavalry down here. I says, I I stumbled into a cockfighting ring. He goes, what did the lieutenant tell you? I said, I know. I says, but he's always looking for a splash. I go, this would be a splash. He goes, well, he went home for the day. I'm not going to bother him with this. He goes, call the ASPCA. I said, you're fucking kidding me. Call the ASPCA. He goes, call the ASPCA. I call the ASPCA, and I don't know if you remember, in the early 2000s, there was a television show called Animal Precinct on Animal Planet. Oh, yeah. So it was it was like a reality show where they had um, cameramen embedded with the ASPCA police, mm-hmm. and they would go around locking people up that were cruel animals. Mm-hmm. So I call this number, and I get one of the guys from the show. Mm. And, uh, I mean, you would have thought I handed him like a, a, a gold cougaran or something. He's like, are you kidding me? This is great. You sure you don't want this? I said, they told me to give it up. He goes, I'll tell you what. He goes, we're going to look into this. If we get a warrant for the place, he goes, I'll reach out. He goes, maybe you can make a couple of hours overtime. You can show up on the warrant. I said, that's fine. I forget all about this. About a month goes by. I had taken off a couple of days off. I'm helping my dad put a fence in, in their backyard. My cell phone rings. It's the guy from the ASPCA police. And he's like, this is big. We, you know, we sent an undercover in there. I mean, this is going to be tremendous. Do, do you want a piece of this? And I said, nope. They told me to stick to auto crime. And I ha- I got to take a couple of days off to help my dad. He goes, no problem, right? Day or two later, I go into work. And it's on the front page of every major New York newspaper. Largest cockfighting ring in New York busted. ASPCA, blah, 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 right? My sergeant, who should have just kept his mouth shut, walks into the lieutenant's office and he shows him the newspaper article. The lieutenant goes, so he goes, yeah, Ferrari actually gave this to the ASPCA police. He walked into this lieutenant as a shit fit. My lieutenant was one. He was a good guy, but he was one of these guys. He always had his nose pressed to the glass from the outside. 
I mean, he would have pushed his mother in front of a subway train to get to a press conference. Like he just <laughs> wanted that. He just always wanted to be in the press. Con- he was always a publicity chaser. So he calls me and he starts reading me the riot act. He goes, we could have gotten a press conference. This could have been huge for us. I said, you told me to stick to auto crime. <laughs> so that's a story from my book, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division. You can't win in the NYPD. You just can't. That's funny. And so, I mean, what? why was he so big on making sure you stuck to auto crimes? I, I feel like if, if you were finding finding issues, you were finding issues. Why was he, why was he so big on that? You know, he came from another era. He was, he was hired in the sixties. I think he got hired. I think he got hired the year before I was born and he was an old timer. He did almost 40 years back then. It was narcotics did narcotics, vice did vice, auto crime did auto crime. And he just didn't like you deviating from the plan, but it, you know, it's like it's like a it, it's like an overweight person that's got diabetes and they still want the cookie. He still would do anything for a press conference. He just he 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 was always looking for an angle for us to jump in on something. And you know, it burned him because we could have been in the middle of it, but I gave it up. Yeah, yeah. So you talked about kind of people, everyone sticking to their lanes. I just wondered too about you know the the New York Police Department. Is is it? kind of based off of different boroughs or are you all over the city? Cause I know people that live there. I feel like just in the people that I know, they kind of stick to their certain boroughs and they're not really, uh, you know, they're not, they're not doing a, a ton of traveling around. Do you guys have individual departments in, in each borough or are you all over the place? Well, all right. So there's five boroughs in New York and there's 77 precincts or police stations mm-hmm. spread out across the five boroughs. Okay, so like Brooklyn, I think has Brooklyn or Queens has the most precincts, and like Staten Island has like three. Um, in addition to, and and those are cops in uniform that respond to calls. Then you have specialized units. Now, I worked in the auto crime division, which fell under the umbrella of OCCB, which is Organized Crime Control Bureau. We were a citywide unit. We could go anywhere, and we didn't tell the precinct cops what we were doing. Because you never know. I mean, there's always that OCCB was created because of police corruption. So it's like Macy's not telling Gimbals. You know, if we make an arrest, we process it in a precinct, obviously. But we don't tell the precinct cops, hey, there's a chop shop over there or that guy's selling guns out of the back of that bakery. We do that ourselves. We don't get involved with them with that. Yeah. So did you ever have that issue within the precinct of of people either being upset that they weren't getting a a piece of the action, a piece of the yeah, all the time. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, sometimes because the department changed and they wanted downtown wanted the precinct cops and the commanders to get more aggressive as far as combating crime. So yes, things would overlap. I remember one time there was this cop. It's he's it's actually in one of my books. There was a guy. He was a cop. He was a lazy cop. I couldn't stand the guy. He rose to the rank of lieutenant. And here we are 15 years later, I'm in a, I'm in a garage, I'm in a backyard with a tow truck pulling stolen vehicles out of the back. And he's a precinct lieutenant. And he comes to me and he goes, what's going on here? I says, another team in my office got a search warrant. He goes, well, I didn't know about this. I says, well, I don't know what to tell you. And he says, well, I says, I'll tell you what. I said, later on, I says, I'll, I'll get all the numbers for you. Who, what, when, where, why? Because I, I didn't like him, but I knew him a little. I says, after I get done pulling these cars out, I'll give you a recap of what, what we did. And uh, 
Later on, I go up to his office. And he starts browbeating me. You know, you guys think you could just come in here and show up? And I was like, yeah, actually we can. And I had to call my lieutenant. It's almost like a game of, of chess. I had to call my lieutenant, actually the guy with the cockfighting ring. And he went up there and abused him. But he said, well, what are, you, what are you messing with my detectives for? He goes, you know what organized crime does. You know, we don't have to tell you, you know, what, what if you've got a bad cop in your precinct? You know what I mean? We, we don't, you know, or even it doesn't even have to be the cops are bad. If you tell a precinct that you've got a chop shop in their command, they're going to have guys that they're, they're nosy. They're going to drive by. They're going to look. They're going to they're going to they're going to raise them up. I would assume kind of these organized crime, the ones that were citywide, did they have, I guess, a little bit more seniority or a little bit more authority then? Because it sounds like you were kind of, you know, telling the lieutenant that that wasn't what was going to happen. So I don't feel like that would have happened with your own lieutenant, right? It's not authority. It's um, we had more flexibility. Mm. So when you're a precinct cop, there's a lot more rules. you got to work, you know, you, you can't leave the precinct. you got to even get like a sandwich. You can't go to the next precinct over to get a sandwich. You can't leave the borough. You're, you know, you turn out for four to 12. You're supposed to drive around in your precinct and answer calls. A citywide unit, we had more flexibility. We could go anywhere where the case took us. Well, we've got two more stories. Let's let's go to the uh, Hansen and Gretel story. Just the name of that is is interesting to me. Oh, Hansel and Gretel, yeah. So it's the early '90s. Me and my friends were young guys. We're single. We're going to bars and meeting girls and this cop bars. And there was this one cop that worked in another precinct with my old partner, and he was an amateur magician. So we're at the bar talking to girls and stuff, and he would show up and start pulling flowers out of his sleeve and pulling gold coins from behind her. Basically cock-blocking us with magic. So <laughs> I turned to his partner, who I knew quite well, and I says, would you get him the fuck out of here? Like, how do you compete with him? And he goes, you know, he goes, he's the laziest cop in the world. He goes, I wish he took making balloon animals at kids' parties on the weekends as much as he did with his NYPD career. <laughs> so anyway, a couple of weeks later, the magician and my old partner, they get called out to a basement apartment on a midnight. It comes over as calls for help. That's it. They go into the basement of this building, and you got two doors, door number one, door number two. So they go to door number one. My partner takes his nice stick. He raps on the door. No one answers, right? He goes to knock on door number two. And the magician tells my old partner, he goes, what are you going to knock on that door for? We came down here. It's late. We made all this noise. Our radios are blaring. Anybody would have called 911. They would have came out already. It's bullshit. Let's go. So they leave. What they didn't know was behind door number two, the super of the building was selling Coke out of his apartment. He gets addicted to Coke and he falls behind on his payments. So when you fall behind on your payments to your wholesaler, they don't send like nasty letters or send debt collectors. They're going to kill him. So the super knows he's got a problem and he's not leaving his apartment. So these two Albanian guys, they did an old gypsy trick. They brought an attractive female. They knock on the door. They put the female's face in front of the peephole. The super gets wood. He pulls open the door. They bum rush him, shut the door, and now they're pistol whipping the super, kicking his ass. Where's the money? Where's the drugs? He doesn't have the answer. So they shoot him in the head. They roll him up in a carpet. They take him out of the apartment, and they throw him in the furnace of the building. So while he's going up like a fire log, they go back into the apartment, and they're ransacking door number two. They're in the apartment. They're ransacking it. Here comes the magician of my old partner, and they're outside, and my old partner's about to knock on this door with two killers in there. So inside the apartment, they come up with a plan. The two guys tell the female, listen, if those two fucking cops knock on the door, let them in. 
Just start yelling in Yugoslavian and point to the kitchen and lead them down the hallway. When you get past the threshold of this door, throw yourself on the floor. We'll come out from behind. We'll shoot them. We'll throw them in the furnace and we'll get the fuck out of here. <laughs> they never knock on the door. So they leave. A week or so later, the super's got family. They're calling the cops like, what happened to this guy? He vanished. The detectives get involved. They see there was a call, a 911 call to that apartment. So they bring in my old partner, the magician. They say, anything suspicious, anything seem out of order? And my old partner says, yeah, we knocked on the first door, but we didn't knock on the second door. But when I was leaving, there was a car parked outside on a fire hydrant. I gave it a parking ticket. Parking ticket was the getaway car that belonged to the female. They bring her in. She starts giving up the store, trying to minimize her involvement in it, but in for a penny, in for a pound. They track down the two Albanian hitmen. They catch them. Then they had to go back to the building. It was like February, the dead of winter. They had to shut the heat off to the building for like three days for that furnace to cool down enough that they could get his his skull and bones out of the out of the furnace. So that's a story entitled Last Night a Magician Saved My Life. Seriously, that he he was working some some other magic. I feel like he saved your partner. So I, I would uh I'd give him a little bit easier time. He didn't like him, but he sounds like he did some some good work. Uh I, I got another story about him in another book, but yeah, he was <laughs> my friend's mother was a victim of a pickpocketing. So he shows up, grabs the pickpockets, and then starts ta- trying to talk her out of it like you know, um, you know, these cases get dropped all the time. She goes, what are you kidding me? I want these guys arrested. He said, all right, I'll come back in a couple hours and take you down to court. So she's in front. She's in her house looking out the window, waiting for this cop to show up. He shows up. He hits the sirens in the police car. She comes outside. He's got the two bad guys handcuffed in the back seat. And she goes, what are you kidding me? You brought them to my house? He goes, so? She goes, now they know where I live. She goes, he goes, Oh, so he looks in the mirror at the two bad guys handcuffed in the back seat. He goes, I don't want you coming back here. She goes, they're not going to listen to you. They're criminals. I'm not pressing charges. And she went back into the house. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, he, he may not have had the, the most brains then, just in that one situation. I've, I And I, I, I guess I was surprised by the way that the story worked. It was just super, super lucky. I figured he didn't want to knock on that door because he was – involved so i i wonder what made him decide and let's really not knock on that door this this it's every police department because i worked in another one after i retired from the nypd there are it's like any other job you know what i mean you're gonna have we call it we call it dead wood dead wood or empty suits they just they show up and they you know they get to work late they leave early and they do the bare minimum that's not the entire nypd by the way that's not the vast majority but we have them yeah yeah one last story. What's the nun story? <laughs> That's a good one. So probably mid-90s, my partner and I are in the Riverdale section of the Bronx, and we get flagged down by two attractive females dressed as nuns. Okay. So in that precinct, you had two colleges. You had the College of Mount St. Vincent and Manhattan College. And both colleges had fraternities and sororities. And the college kids were always doing stupid shit, running into a diner naked and stealing a salt and pepper shake, you know, to get into their fraternity and sorority. So I thought it was a joke, you know, and they're crying and they're wringing their hands. And essentially what it was is they were really nuns and Mother Superior went away for the weekend. They stole Mother Superior's car. They drove into the Bronx from Westchester and they wanted to do a little shopping. 
Well, they parked in this um, restaurant slash pizzeria parking lot and they went out shopping. When they came back, you know, there's a big sign. Those who don't patronize such and such restaurant will be towed. Mm -hmm. So he had their car towed. So they went to the towing place. The guy wants a hundred bucks. They don't have a hundred bucks. And he tells the two nuns to pound sand. So they call us. So after they convinced me they're really nuns, I put them in the back of the radio car. I go to the towing garage and the place has got like a fence. So I can't get to the trail in the back. So I'm hitting the police siren. This big fat guy comes out eating a slice of pizza with his fly open. He walks over and I'm like, hey, dude, you know, come on. You towed these nuns cars. You let it out. He's like, nope. So I, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Like, we got two crying nuns and this guy won't let him out. Like, he's going to hell. So the nuns are upset. And she's like, if Mother Superior finds out, we're going to get sent to another order. And I'm like, now this is before um, um, ATMs and everyone had an ATM card. So I went up to my locker. I got a couple of bucks. Then I mooched a couple of bucks off my friends. Long story short, I came up with 100 bucks. I gave it to the nun. I says, go get your car out. So she goes, I'll pay you back. Give me your phone number, blah, 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 blah. I says, nah, she goes, please, please. I said, all right. So if you've ever lent money out to somebody, you know it's a pain in the ass to get it back, right? So a week, two weeks goes by. And I was in my early 20s. I I was between apartments. So I was staying with my parents for a couple of months, right? My father was a notorious ball buster. So I come home one day and he goes, Sister Samantha called. And I said, all right, you got the number? He goes, yeah. And he goes, Sister Samantha. I go, Dad, she's a nun. She goes, oh, I don't care who you date. What? What? A nun? <laughs> Why is a nun calling here, right? So I, I said, Dad, it's too much of a story to get into. So what winds up happening is it was this, they were in this uh, nunnery or convent in Westchester County. I had to go up there and, and go to a park which was like a couple of blocks away. And then she had to sneak off. It was like a cloak and dagger spy story. She sneaks <laughs> off the property, right? I'm sitting there like feeding pigeons. You know, it's like a drop. She shows up and she's got an envelope and she gives me a hundred bucks and she could not have been nicer. And thank you for saving me and blah, 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 blah. And I said, you know, I says, you're a young woman. Like, I think I was like 20. We were about the same age. Like we were in our mid twenties. I go like, you're a young woman. You sure you're, you know, you're happy with the choice you made. She goes to you. I said, yeah. I says, I'm quite happy with the choice I made. And I kept in touch with her for a while and I don't know whatever happened to her, but uh, yeah, that's a true story. I lent a hundred bucks to a nun. That's awesome. I wonder how she got the hundred bucks. That's, that's the question. I, I don't know whether we want answers for uh, you know, she probably hit up family, I would imagine. Or they get paid. They get paid a stipend. I don't. I can't imagine it'd be a lot of money, but she, she came up with the money. That's that's funny. I that 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 may have been my favorite story. I, I do like that for sure. So tell us. Uh, you know, you you you've told us some stories. We've heard a little bit about you know your your time on uh, on the force. But what were some of the the most and least rewarding parts of it all? Obviously. You know, there's good and bad in everything. And, and what was some of the good and bad here? Well, the bad, I mean, you, you see the worst of humanity. I mean, I've walked into a couple of homicides like right after, you know, right after they happened and, and two times with the killer still in the room. You know, it, it's almost like something like out of a horror movie. I saw a woman decapitated. I, I you know, it's um, I was down at ground zero for 9-11. So you do see the worst of humanity. Thank goodness. I mean, just the men and women of the NYPD, we, we tend to let things roll off our back. I mean, and then the, the good, you get to see things that no one else is ever going to see. And, and you get to, 
you get to meet people you never thought you'd get to meet. I mean, I spent the day with Benjamin Net Netanyahu and a couple of his bodyguards from the Shimbet. They were like commandos in suits. You know, I, I got to go to the UN. It, it's guard foreign heads of state. I bumped into famous people, spent time with famous people. So there's a good and a bad with any job. But, but I think with the NYPD, it's really, really good. And it can be really, really bad. Yeah. So do you think that you... You love, you know, law enforcement enough that you would have liked it anywhere, or do you like to be a part of the NYPD? Let's go back to Duluth, Minnesota. Would you have wanted to be a, a detective there, or is there something special about New York City? No, there's something special about New York City, and the great thing about the New York City Police Department is, yes, there's nepotism, and yes, if you have a relative above the rank of captain, eventually you're going to go to work wherever you want to work. If you want to work in mounted, you're going to work in mounted. You want to work in aviation, you're going to work in aviation. But somebody like me, whose dad was a butcher, if you put in the hard work, you get good evaluations, you stay out of trouble, and you just keep your nose to the ground and you do the work, you'll be rewarded. You know, it's it's easy to listen to the old time, we call them hairbags in the locker room that are like, ah, what are you putting in for that boy? You're never going to go go anywhere you should you know what i mean it's it, it's like the american dream you can go wherever you want in the nypd as long as you put in the work yeah yeah so you you've retired what is there like a a certain age you have to retire if you're in your 20s in the 90s i don't feel like you're necessarily were at retirement age so why did you why did you leave the the department well, the retirement age where they force you out, I think is 62 or 63. Hmm. I equate, and I write this in one of my books, a 20-year career with the New York City Police Department is a merry-go-round. You're going to have your ups. You're going to have your downs. There's music playing. There's a lot of distractions, and it's fun. But you've got to know when to get off that ride. If you stay on that ride too long, it's going to burn you out. You're going to outlive your usefulness. And eventually, Seabiscuit's going to throw you on your head. And that was my lieutenant. I mean, from the stories in my books, and he's in uh, my book, Grand Theft Auto. He stayed too long. He loved the department too. It's like loving something that's never going to love you back. Mm. And eventually it's going to turn on you or it's just going to ignore you. And that's what happened to him. He outlived his usefulness. And, you know, they, they, they kind of made it nice for him to retire. He wouldn't. They took him out of our building. They shipped him out to a Queens office where now he's paying a toll. They took away his category one car. Now he's paying for gas. They put him basically in a broom closet and he still wouldn't retire until it just got too much for him and eventually said, all right, enough. But you got to know when to get off that ride. I, I was I was young. I retired after 20 years at 41 years old. So you just realized that the, the time was time was then and you moved on. You said you, you went to another department. What 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 kind of work did you do there? So I moved to Florida. I was bored out of my mind. And before I got into writing, I said, you know what? I could do this again. I'm just going to reinvent myself and become a cop again. And I got my certification down here in the Sunshine State. I joined a small police department and they were great. But I, you know, it's at 40 something years old to go back on the road, like being a police officer, answering calls. That's a young man's game. And I didn't realize I didn't realize that I thought I could do it. And you know, I went from being a detective working on organized crime cases in America's largest police department to answering, you know, domestics, dealing with drunk drivers again. And it just I was like, you know, I'm doing midnights driving around in circles in this small department. And it's like it's like having a stroke and trying to learn something all over again. Yeah, I know if someone does something bad, put handcuffs on them, but the paperwork's different. The procedures are different. I was like, you know, this isn't worth it for me. I'm either going to wind up getting hurt or bitter. And I don't want to be hurt or bitter. And I re-retired. 
I got you. So is that where you're at now, Florida? Yeah, I'm in Florida writing books. <laughs> I got you. Well, let's talk about those books. You've you've mentioned you know a few times that this story's in this book, this story's in that book. So is that what these books are? Kind of a collection of of stories from your career, or what are the books if people crack them open? Yeah, all my books, my NYPD books at least, there's no beginning, middle, end. There's just chapters and short stories. So I'll pick a topic and then boom, I'll fill it with three or four stories. They're great travel books. And the great thing about me writing about my NYPD career in these books is I'm living vicariously for me. I get to remember this stuff again. And the funny thing is, once I started cranking these books out, then my friends start calling me up. Oh, I don't, you know, like I, when I got into writing, I'm not a sour grapes kind of guy. The two things I didn't want to do was embarrass anybody or get them in trouble or divorced. So I changed the names, the dates, the locations. I'll embellish a little bit and I'll move things around. But I mean, guys that I work with, they're like, I know who you're talking about. Or is this who you're talking about? So it's pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. So, um, you know, be becoming a writer is definitely a, a learned skill. Just because somebody has a good story doesn't mean they can write it down. So what was you know, that process did, was it the, I mean, was it your, what you expected it to be? Was it easier? Was it harder? Talk about kind of the process of actually starting to get things down on paper. My first couple of books were difficult because I wasn't disciplined enough and I didn't know what I was doing. Not that I really know what I'm doing now, but for, for first time authors, I suggest don't write in chronological order because if you're not disciplined enough and, and, and you don't know the process, you'll get hung up on that first chapter which might not be the strong point of the book. And then you'll discourage yourself and you won't put in the time to complete it or it'll be a mess. Pick a part of your book that you know is going to be in there that's going to be enjoyable for you to write about. And try to get as much done as you can. And when you hit writer's block, move on to another story. You can always come back. Yeah. It's like a Seinfeld episode. There you go. <laughs> how, many, how many books have you written? I've written six and I'm in the middle of my seventh right now. Gotcha. So is it, you know, is it something that you're, is, is it like a daily thing? I just wonder what your writing process is. Is it just something you do at your leisure? Do you, are you kind of regimented with it or what's that look like? I try to put in at least an hour a day. That's the minimal. So I'll write in the morning. And I feel my mind works differently at different points of the day. I try when I have my coffee in the morning, I'll try to put in 20 minutes. I'll try to put in a half hour of midday when I'm taking a break for something. And then in the evenings, I'll write. Sometimes I've got I'm overwhelmed with something like I got this and I'll just start cranking it out. I got to tell you, I had COVID for two weeks. I got more writing done with COVID after that headache went away. I mean, COVID was probably the best thing for this upcoming book for me. I mean, I banged out probably half of a book in two weeks. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously COVID was a, was a terrible thing for, for many, many people, but I have heard from a ton of people that I've interviewed, definitely those that are in the arts that, it was one of their most creative times. So that's uh, that's not surprising to me at all. Do you, I mean, if, if most of your books are about, you know, real life stories and maybe a little bit of embellishment, maybe a little bit of, of what some of the other, you know, your, your friends went through. Um, do you think there's an eventually an end to these books or do you think you would have stories for, for your lifetimes to be able to, to fill these books? Are you going to eventually have to start making stuff up? It's funny you should say that because um, I took a break from writing about my NYPD career. And I just, my brother, my, at my brother and a couple of my friends, you know, requested, like, you know, you had such an interesting childhood growing up in the Bronx and stuff and going to Catholic high school. You should write about that. And I said, you know, I'm going to take a break for a year. 
and stop with the NYPD stuff. And I wrote Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. It's got a picture of on the cover, a priest chasing a kid in a Catholic high school uniform out of a confession booth. That really happened to me. And, you know, it, it was almost like therapy. I, I enjoyed it so much writing about my childhood. And the thing is, I probably took a step back. I know my NYPD books are going to sell. There's a niche there for true crime. And New York. you put New York City Police Department on anything, someone's going to say that that could be interesting. I knew writing this book would be a challenge as far as sales, but I did it anyway. And, and surprisingly, I guess I got that much of a following that it is selling. So I'm lucky there. Um, could I run out of stories, the NYPD? Yeah, I definitely could. I mean, it's getting more and more difficult now. Um I, I, there's a there's a, a radio show in New York and Philadelphia on Saturdays and Sundays, and I cut stories from my books. I do a, a three minute story for them every week. So when when the host wants to take a break, he'll play one of my stories, and I'm struggling with that now. As far as like, did I tell that story already, <laughs> or you know, is there another way I could tell that? So yeah, there's an end to everything. I got you. I got you. So once that happens, are you going to? Just stop writing. Do you have the you know the passion for writing that you're going to start moving into something else, or what's that going to be? I'm going to write as long as it's fun for me. Yeah. If it's not fun for me anymore, I mean, you know, then I'll just stop and do something else. I mean, you know, I I could do a lot of things. I was I was painting for a while, believe it or not. I was restoring furniture, and that's when I got into this, and that wasn't fun anymore. And I got into writing. I like it. I like it. So I wanted to kind of know what you're. You're up to these days outside of writing. You said that you're in Florida. Your bio somewhere that I read said you split time between Branson, Missouri and Papua New Guinea. Is this still something happening? No, no, not what I do. And I, I, I gotcha. So it, on, on the back of my books is about the author section. And I always put something ridiculous in there. Like ah. another of my books, I said, I split my time between Disney Springs and my timeshare in North Korea. So I always put something ridiculous in it. There's another book where I say, I, I you know, I, I achieved my lifelong dream of throwing out the pitch at, at a baseball, at a minor league baseball game under an assumed name. That really happened, but that's not a lifelong dream. Well, yeah, you did get me. Cause I was like, what? Yeah. I, uh, yeah, that, I think that's the first time that I, I think I, I fell for something, but yeah, I was wondering uh, what what in the world that was all about. But no, you really are in Florida. Oh yeah, gotcha. Love I gotcha. it. Gotcha. So, how can people find you? How can people find these books? So, if you go on Amazon and just go to the um, book section, just type in my name, Vic Ferrari, like the car, and my my library comes up. I've got six books: um, NYPD Law and Disorder, Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division. Jesus, I did write a lot of books. The NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. A story in there about a guy stealing a horse and carriage for a ride through Central Park. And uh, NYPD Law and Disorder. And this is an NYPD, but Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. <laughs> All my books are 10 bucks. They're paperback. And they're $2.99 ebook download. They make great stocking stuffers for anybody with a sense of humor or wants to know a behind-the-scenes look at the New York City Police Department. And if you want to get a hold of me, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at VicFerrari50. I got you. The one last thing I want to ask you about these books is, and it may be hard, it's like picking a kid, but somebody's listening and saying, whoa, he just threw out a lot of words at me. What book do you recommend somebody pick up? Unless the, I mean, obviously we want them to pick them all up, but if they just have to pick one, is there one that you're particularly proud of? 
I love all my books. They're all loaded with funny stories. But the one near and dear to me is Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD Auto Crime Division. That's my 10 years in the auto crime division. It's everything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry. Who steals your car? What, what happens to your car after it gets stolen? The, the stolen car industry. And there's stories in there about you know scams and, and ways guys steal cars and a car thief's mindset. How to protect yourself from getting your car stolen what to look for when you're buying a used car that you don't get screwed. So it, that there's a lot of information in there. I struggle with that because I didn't want to give up too many secrets. But then again, if I don't educate the public, it's still going to go on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Jackson. I really appreciate it. So that was Vic Ferrari. What an awesome guy. Really enjoyed his stories. Just I could sit back and listen to him tell stories about you know this uh, this career. I think all day. So I I really feel honored that he decided to share three stories with us. If you want to hear them in more detail, go check out his books. If you want to hear way more stories, he's got six books out. Most of them are about his time in the New York City Police Department. One is about his time growing up kind of in Catholic schools. There's another one that he talked about too uh, that's kind of a, a collection of other short stories. But I, I really enjoyed listening to his stories, and I know the books are just chock full of, of even more amazing ones. So urge you to go check those out if you listened today and really enjoyed what you heard. Uh, hopefully, um, it was, it was I, I, I just think that it was something that most of you guys are going to hear and think, man, that was, that was fun. We kind, I kind of feel like I was kind of on a ride along, so to speak. So what a pleasure. I urge you to check those out. All the information will be in the show notes to go check out his Amazon and any of his other contact information. Us, if this is the first time you've listened, thanks so much. Urge you to check out some of the other episodes. There's over a hundred other ones that I and I've interviewed a lot of amazing people, a lot of amazing people to to uh, to come. So hopefully you'll come back. If you haven't already, give us a five star review on Apple and on spotify i really appreciate that leave a written review on apple that's even more amazing really really appreciate that follow us on facebook not in a huff with jackson huff follow us on instagram not in a huff podcast jacksonhuff.com a lot of places to find this podcast but uh, you found it today and i'm grateful for that hopefully you'll be back next week take it away chris this has been not in a huff with jackson huff thank you for listening Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.